0: But I'm looking around. I think I know pretty much everybody in here. Thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, buckle up. This is going to be a lot. I'm going to try to go fast. Um, I'm an elder here at City Church. I'm Todd. If you don't know me, come meet me afterwards. It's my privilege to be here this morning. This passage today is a is a pretty famous passage. Uh, it's going to be a fun one, and I, everybody here in some way or another will be able to relate to this passage. So as we get started, here's the big question. Here's the big question. If God creates a holy new creation in us, why do we go on sinning? Why do we keep sinning? So keep that in mind. This is the issue in the second half of Romans chapter 7. This is what Paul is dealing with in his own life in the passage that we're about to read together. Let's read Romans seven, thirteen through 25 together. Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law that he was talking about right before then. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Dear Father, dear Jesus, we come to you this morning very grateful for your word. Thank you for letting us read that freely this morning. Thank you for how it is here for us to read and learn from every day. And I pray as we go, I pray that you, that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the word to the Christians in this room, God. Show us what you want us to see here and let everything be done for your glory. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. So did anybody else find that passage just on the surface a little bit confusing? I do not do what I want to do. I don't do what I do. Let me reiterate that three different times and say it a different way. The things that I want to do, I can't do. The things that I don't want to do are what I end up doing. Um, I'm gonna, We're going to break this down, but before we do, I'm going to kind of go back to the beginning of Romans and just kind of catch us up where we are here in Romans 7. And I'm going to use a few points I got from MacArthur because he can explain it a lot better than I can. But it's kind of going back and bringing us where we are. In the first part of Romans, we learn that everyone is a sinner in need of justification. Think back to a couple of months ago when we first started in Romans. Everyone is a sinner in need of justification. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us that believe through salvation. So Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. This is the justification process. Divine righteousness Foreign to us, we have no righteousness apart from Christ. It's foreign to us, it's given to us upon believing in Christ. Later, we learn through sanctification. So, for justification, He declares us righteous, for sanctification is when He actually makes us righteous. So, during sanctification, it's a divine miracle. He makes us righteous, He changes us, He creates a new person in us. The old person is crucified with Christ. The new person in us, the new man, is created. In this passage of Romans 7, Paul is describing an ongoing conflict that each believer experiences. All Everybody in here, this is a battle you face if you're honest. We have Christ in us, in our new man, but we have sin nature in us as well. It is an exhausting battle. Can, who can say, yeah, it's pretty exhausting? It's an ex- it's literally an exhausting battle. It was no different for Paul, who arguably was one of the best Christians that ever lived, like on paper, and literally on paper in the Bible. But um, we learn through sanctification, he makes us righteous by a divine miracle. But we still have sin nature in us. This is an exhausting battle. Let's look at Galatians 2.20. This is a verse everybody knows. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead, but I still live this life in the, in the flesh and I live it by faith through Christ who, who gave himself for me. So this is an exhausting thing that we all go through. In Christ, the old self has become a corpse. The old man has become a corpse. It is lifeless. There are no longer any signs of life in the old man. We are no longer the person we were. That person has ceased to exist. It's not transformation, or it is transformation that we get through a new life. It's not addition. Think about that. God doesn't add something to our soul. He wipes out the old man and creates a new man. It's tra- it's total transformation, not addition, not adding of something. So in Christ, the old man is a corpse, dead, no more life. The old man was totally, completely sinful. And this, man, this boggled my mind this week because we think there's people that do good. There's, you know, there's some good I can do. Think about this. The old man was totally, completely sinful with no potential for righteousness apart from Christ. It had to die and be replaced by a new life. This new life created is pure and holy. The new life created in us by Christ is pure and holy. When we are credited or we have his righteousness imputed to us, that part of us is perfect. It is holy. It ha- but the old life had to die. The new life is beyond comp- contamination or corruption by sin and transgression. That's something that that we don't even think about. But the the new life part of us is beyond corruption. It is acceptable to God and ready for heaven. Christians are fit for heaven right now. And I know you think, I don't know, I got this sin in my life and this and that, you know, and I got this that I need to do and all this before I got to seek Christians are fit for heaven. Think about the thief on the cross. How much works did he get to do to go along with his faith before he died? Not very many. And what did Jesus look over and say to him? He said, I'll see you later today in heaven. That's the Todd prayer phrase. But that's basically what he said. This is the truest understanding of who we are. Think about that. The truest the truest understanding of who you are in this room today, if you are a Christian, which I'm I'm hoping everybody is, but the truest understanding of that is you have a living soul that's like Christ. That it, You are not the sinful, dead-in-your-sin man that you were before. The truest form here is that for the first time in our life, righteousness is normal and sin is foreign. Before we were saved, sin was normal sin reigned in our mortal bodies and righteousness was foreign nothing we could do was could be righteous now it's the opposite it doesn't say we doesn't we don't sin anymore but now righteousness is what we're made for and sin is foreign so that, that's what comes with the new life when i when i meet my in, when i meet god my inner being does not need to change we long for the redemption of our physical bodies That's what we're saying here. We're still trapped. We have Christ living in us, the Holy Spirit made perfect in us, needing nothing for heaven. Because what God made in us, he made perfect. He does not make mistakes. But our carnal body, we're still incarcerated in this human body, in this body of sin until we die, until we meet Christ, or until he takes us away. So here's the question again. I want to repeat it. If God creates a holy new creation in us, why do we go on sinning? This is the issue in the second half of Romans 7. We still have our humanness. Is that a word? Our humanity. We still have have the part of us that is human. It is the reality of our first birth from our mom and dad. We were born into sin. We still have our human flesh. We are imprisoned by our humanity. The picture we see here in these verses, especially in the first verse here, is of a man who has come face to face with God's law. So remember, Paul's been explaining God's law to us and, and the, the how we deal with it now as a Christian. And he's look imagine that God's law was a mirror. And Paul, and we're looking into the mirror, and what we see is the horror of our own sin. When we look at the law and the law is like a mirror and we look into it, we see the horror of our own sin. We see how we fall short. That's what the law shows us, how we fall short of God's law. It is a war against our flesh. The Christian life is a war against our flesh. It's a war against sin. Let's read Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and we're gonna preach on this when Marcus gets there in a few months we haven't got there yet y'all know these verses but it's so applicable i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies a living as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your s- spiritual worship or some some says reasonable service or reasonable worship so in romans 12:1 he said i appeal to you by the mercy of god present your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god sin doesn't own us anymore. It has no more dominion over us, but it is still in us. Can we agree with that? If there's anybody in here that is without sin, please come up after and tell me how you're doing it. Because I, I, I would like to know. Romans 6:14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We are no longer truly bound by sin and is no longer our slave master but it is still in us because we are still in our human bodies. It can still have an impact on us, but it's no longer our master. To get a good picture of this and where we're coming from in chapter 7, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 7 and work our way here to verse 13 where we're at. At the beginning of the chapter, it talks about how if a person is married and their spouse dies, they are released from that marriage. So if you're married and your wife dies, if you're a man, you are released from that marriage and you're free to marry again if you want to, or whatever, and it won't be considered adultery. And what Paul is saying here is it's the same with the law. When we die, when we are crucified with Christ, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. And then last week, Adam, one of our other elders, preached on the, the section right before this section. And in this section, he talks he talked about how the law is spiritual. It's not physical, it's spiritual. The law is good and holy because it comes from God. Things that come from God are good and holy. It was meant to expose our sin, not to forgive our sin. It also aggravates rebellion in us, stirring up sin. And when I say that, you're like, what does that mean, Todd? How does the law make us rebellious? Think about a kid at Christmas, and I have a good story for this. There's some presents under the tree, and you say, hey, Johnny, Uh, there's your presents over there under the tree, but don't go shake them and don't open a corner and see what's in there because you don't want to spoil the surprise. What's the kid going to do? So when I was like eight years old, my mom and dad said, Todd, your Christmas presents are in our closet. Just don't go in there. So, you know, week passed or whatever. And I go in there and I'm looking around and I see a bow and arrow set that I I knew was not supposed to be there. So the next day I'm like, hey dad, whose bow and arrow set is that? And he's like, you went in my closet. (laughs) And I'm like, Yeah, and he's like, well, now your Christmas present is ruined. And I think I, like, had the poochie lip for four or five hours. But that's the idea here. When when presented with rebellion, a lot of times that's our first thing to go to. So the sin exposes that, or the law exposes that in us, and sometimes we rebel. Uh, And Paul says here at the end, um, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know how to, I wouldn't know what it means to be covetous. And what he means by that is, it says, thou shalt not steal, but to covet is to go further than that. And it's to wish you had the things your brother had. And what he's saying here is, that's also a sin. It's a sin, it's an inward sin, a sin of the heart. But the posture of the heart matters to God as much as our actions. Think about when when Jesus said, um, if you have hate for your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder against them. And you say, wait a minute, that's not fair, but that's how much it matters to God. That's how that's how bad sin is to God. That's how the law shows us where we fall short. So this is so now we're back to where we're at for this week. We pick up here in verse 13. As we get into the verses, here's an example that I read this week, but it actually hit home for me, so I'm gonna use it because I've done this personally so many times. Has anybody, and I, this is tongue in cheek because I know most of us have. Has anybody in here ever tried to do a low-carb diet? Let me see the hands. The Atkins, whatever you want to call it, the carnivore, I mean, you name it, right? We've, Yeah, there's like 20 different versions. All right. It sounds so good at first. I can eat all the bacon I want. I can eat, a, I can eat an 18-egg omelet with three pounds of bacon and two ribeye steaks. And at first, it's like, yes, I can do this. So what happens? You eat so much bacon, you never want to see it again. You eat so many ribeyes, they don't even taste good anymore. And a week into this diet, or maybe two weeks, if you're super tough, you get that craving. And you look over and your kids are scarfing down the McDonald's french fries. Or, I don't know, what's your poison? The Pringles. That that would be it for me. The Salt and Amy's laughing. Yeah, salt and vinegar Pringles. Yeah, that's right. For her, it would be more like, I don't know, like chocolate or something. Anyway, what's the point? What do you do? You fight really hard and you're like, "Man, I've lost this I've lost the 6 pounds." And then somebody gives you a french fry, and then by the end of the night, you you're scarfing down the french fries with two hands. And in 10 days, the 6 pounds you had lost has now turned into an 8-pound gain. And yeah, I know. And it's not that bad. Yes, the those diets can work if you know how to do it right and if you're tough enough. But what I'm trying to say here, does that not sound familiar to us? What happens? We eventually cave. We eventually fall back into what we were doing before. This is kind of what Paul's saying here in a crazy way. He desires to do good, but he doesn't have the ability. And the things that he doesn't want to do is what he ends up doing. So here, here's a good one right here. How many of you have had this thought in my Christian life? Why am I still dealing with that same besetting sin? Why am I still dealing with those same two besetting sins or whatever it is in your life? I should be past this already. I've been a Christian for a long time. I should be past this already. Why am I still dealing with this? What's wrong with me? Has anybody ever thought? I promise you that is a very common thought for me. Right. We were sold, Not. I mean, sometimes. Especially, think about this, especially people that are saved later in life, maybe, and you had, like, a horrible past, and then you get saved, and the new man is definitely different than the old man was for these people. And, and this happens all the time. And maybe you were sold some, a bill of goods that was like, come to Jesus. Everything's going to be great. There's, you're not going to struggle much anymore. He's going to take care of everything. You're not going to be sick. You're not, you know, whatever. Those people fall away from the faith because that's not reality. What happened to the apostles after Jesus left? Almost every one of them was murdered for their faith. They were killed for their faith. I mean, we're not being persecuted in that way that I know of right now. But my point is, just because you become a Christian, things don't instantly get easy. They don't get easy. Now, is there hope? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Oh, it's going to be worth it. But it ain't easy. It doesn't make it any easier. Jesus doesn't take away everything and it's just smooth sailing on a flat track from here to heaven. That's just not the way it works. That made, that was mixing metaphors. The big difference between Paul in this passage that we're getting to and a lot of other Christians is that Paul actually cares. Think about this, think about this. A huge problem in the church at large, the big C church, as we say, is that many people could care less if there is still rampant sin in their life, they could care less. The issue for them is that sin isn't a struggle. That is a problem. If you are a Christian and you have the new life of Christ in you and the new man, and you're living in rampant sin and that's not bothering you, that's a problem. This is a struggle. If you really care. Paul is not questioning here whether or not he is saved. He's not saying, oh man, with all this stuff I'm doing, am I even a Christian? That's not what he's saying. He's not having a problem with his desire to follow God with all of his heart. He reiterates over and over that I love the law. I want to follow God. He's just aware of things that some people aren't aware of. And here's why. As we grow in Christ, our sensitivity to sin grows. One person put it that, As, as our knowledge of Christ grows, our sensitivity and hate for sin grows in equal proportion. Think about that. So the closer you get to Christ and the more you know him and his moral law and you learn to love Christ and his teachings, the more you will hate sin, especially your sin. That's a big deal. We are convicted by things that we weren't convicted of, before, convicted of things we were not convicted of before. So turn again to Romans 13 or 7, 13 through 25, or I'm I'm sure it's going to be up here behind me. Let's let's just go through the actual verses here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? And it's talking about the law, because he had just said the law is good. Did that bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the command and the, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So he asks in thirteen: Since the law is good, has it become death to me? He responds: Certainly not. The law provokes us in our sin nature and exposes our deep sinfulness. Remember how we look in the mirror and we see our deep sinfulness. That's what the law does. It exposes that. It shows us how evil sin really is. How evil it really is. He's saying we need to know sin. To be sin because sin can trick us to make it to make us think it's not really that sinful. Listen to this Spurgeon quote right here. This, this is one of the most deplorable results of sin. It injures us by taking from us the capacity capacity to know how much we are injured. That's one of the worst things about it. So he's saying that the law showed him. Sin and that sin has become sinful beyond measure. It's horrible. And then in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. Remember before in the in the, the section before he has he had said the law is spiritual, not physical. But I am of flesh. He's saying the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, it's sold under sin. Here Paul explains that he is still carnal or of the flesh. He's not saying he's in the flesh, which would mean unregenerate, unsaved. He's saying he's carnal. He's still of the flesh. He's still living in his human body is what he's saying. He's not saying he's not a Christian. He's saying he is aware of his fleshly state. Everyone in here is of that same fleshly state because you're not a spirit. And that's what he's getting at here. Verses 15 through 19 I'm going to go through together, so I'm going to read them real quick. For I do not, and and listen, this is very confusing. So try to pay attention here and figure out what he's saying. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Like I said, that's confusing. Paul is describing here how helpless he feels. He's saying he wants to do right, but he doesn't have the ability, he doesn't have the power to do right. The law gives us the rules, but it doesn't show us how to keep them. So verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Is this a cop-out? Is this Paul saying "It's he did it? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. It's not Paul making, a, he's not shirking his responsibility or blaming it on somebody else. He's saying, he's recognizing that the sin that's coming from him is no is not in accordance with the nature of his new man in Christ. He's saying it's not the real me yes, I'm sinning, but that's not really who I am in Christ. He's saying that the sin in him is like a virus. It's alien or foreign to him at this point, and it wants to destroy him. And he's saying he wants nothing to do with it. He wants nothing to do with this. Let's read James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so james is saying here don't say look i'm tempted by god no god cannot be tempted with evil it's your evil desire it's your it's your human flesh it's your carnality that is enticing you and getting you to sin it's not god it's not the new man inside of you that is perfect and then sin gives gives birth to what eventually turns into death i mean here he is saying that temptation for sin doesn't come from the new man we are in christ it comes from the evil desires of our flesh so here here's a good quote from from an old theologian to be saved from sin a man must at the same time own it and disown it it's the practical paradox reflected in this verse so to be saved from sin you must own it and disown it in other words yes it's me doing it but it's not it's not the real me I the real me my inner man the new creature wants to wants to worship God and do what's right verse 20 now if I do If I do what I do not want, man, this is hard to read. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So this is where Paul describes the battle between his two selves. He is saying that if he is saying that if what I said a minute ago is true, that it's sin that dwells in him, there is an evil present in him, even though he desperately desires to do good. Uh anybody who has ever tried to do good is aware of this struggle. Are we not? We're aware of the struggle. You are aware there is evil still inside in your flesh. You never know how hard it is to stop sinning until you actually try. Thinking about stopping to sin is one thing. Actually trying to stop is something different. You don't realize how hard it is until you really try. Here's a here's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is a famous one. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. Right? You don't know how bad you are until you try to turn it all around to be good, and then you realize, wow, this is rough. Does anybody feel that one? Because I certainly feel that one. All right, in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, Paul knows that his inner being, the part that has been regenerated, is his truest self, the new man living in him, the part God regenerated. He still, lo- that part of him still loves the law of God. It says he delights in the law of God, which means he's happy about it. He he wants to know it. He wants that he loves it. So that part of him still loves what's good. But then in verse 23, which is, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In this verse, Paul recognizes that the flesh, his earthly body, still keeps him in sin's captivity to a point. Remember, you're no longer dominated by sin. It no longer rules us, but there's still sin present. There's still sin there. The point of this passage is that it describes a man trying to be good and holy in his own strength. Who has ever tried to be good and holy in your own strength? How did that work? It's like the it's like the carnivore diet or whatever. It's sometimes you can do it for a while and then you end up falling back. There there's something in this for everybody in this room. This is something we all face if we're honest. This is a very frustrating part of being a Christian. We're alive on earth after salvation, but we're still in our human bodies. So what do we long, then what do we long for? And you, you know where I'm going with this. You know where Paul goes next. The next verse, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he's, he's kind of giving a little monologue here with some laments of how he feels and what's happening in his life. And then he ends it up towards the end with the big question, the total frustration. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? By this point, Paul has come to the point there is nothing good in him apart from the new life in Christ. He is saying that in his flesh, he is wretched. Wretched means miserable. It gives the idea of a man who is worn out from much labor. To be wretched is to be miserable, to be totally and completely wiped out. I'm a miserable, wiped out man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So I'm going to read another Spurgeon quote here that this body of death part, that exact part, um, is pretty interesting. Listen to this. It was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishment to tie a dead body to them placing the two back to back. And there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, corrupting. And this he must drag with him wherever he went. Now, this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him the new life. He has a living and undying principle, which the Holy Spirit has put within him. But he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this dead body this body of death, a thing as loathsome, as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. So I know that sounds crazy, but literally in this time, they would take, if you were a murderer and you had been convicted of murder, sometimes they would take the body of the person you murdered and they would strap them back to back on your body and send you out into town. And by punishable of death, nobody could touch you. So you can't help loosen this person. So they're wrapped up in chains with this dead body and they're walking through town. Imagine this scene. What's gonna happen? Eventually, the rotting carcass, the dead carcass is gonna cause the living body to also die. At the end of this, everybody dies. And that's the idea. It's a horrible punishment for murder. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, who is gonna deliver me from this body of death? I'm strapped to a dead body. Who's going to deliver me from this? And that's how, think about this, y'all. That's how Paul views the the disgustingness of his sin. And like I said before, Paul arguably is one of the the better Christians that have ever lived, you know, according to things that he did on earth. And if he can say that, what should it be like for us? How should we look at sin? This is a gross image. He's given us a vivid picture of a common practice from that time. Imagine the level of intense frustration that Paul feels for being trapped in this sinful flesh in his mortal body. And I said before, does anybody else see this frustration? Then verse 25, then verse 25, he, he, he brings it all back. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord is the first part of that. Why? Because the only hope of deliverance from our flesh is to be with Christ. When we are dead and with Christ, or when he gets, when He comes back and gets us, however that works out for us, to be in his presence, we will have a resurrected body. We will have a body like his body after he was resurrected. Think about this. We will have a new man he has created in us, his spirit he has put in us, and we will have a new body to go along with that that is incorruptible. That body will have no capacity for sin. There comes a day when we are in Jesus' presence as a believer when we will be whole. We will have a new spirit and a new body, and we will be in Christ. That is what we groan for. That's what we long for. That's why we do what we do it's what we're doing. it's what we're after. it is the ultimate goal it is the prize. it is the end of our road to be with Christ. so remember this is the section in Romans where he's talking about sanctification, and all of this as we close as we close here, I want to say two things number one this is go ongo- this is ongoing sanctification as Paul looked at his sin and looked at his life, he he realizes more and more acutely the sin in his life and how nasty it was because he wants to be like Christ. So two things here. Number one, I want you to literally physically turn around and, and look around at everybody. Everybody look around. Re- and I know that's weird. Yeah, Todd, you're a weird guy. I know. All right. Yeah, I know it's all weird. All right. Here's the point of that. You are not alone. You're not alone in this. This is a very, very small percentage of the church of God. And I mean the big C church. I mean everybody who's a Christian on earth right now and alive. We're all going through this. This is something we all face. You're not alone. It's not just you. It's not just me. Man, if if y'all knew the struggle I had, everybody says this every week, but if you knew the struggle I had with this this week because of the, the guilt I feel from sin in my own life on an ongoing basis, None of us are alone. Everybody is dealing with this. That's number one. And number two, the agony Paul is going through in these verses, the deep sadness and groaning over his sin and his inability to uphold the law is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. Remember at the beginning when I said, some people just don't care. They have rampant sin in their life and it doesn't bother them. Why doesn't it it bother them? Why doesn't rampant sin in your life bother you if you're a Christian? Because you're not close to God. You don't care. You're not putting your focus on Christ and on sanctification, on becoming more like Christ, which will ultimately end when we die and are in his presence forever. So make sure you're growing. Make sure you're in the Word. This is the practical part. 10 seconds. Make sure you're growing. Make sure you're in the Word. Make sure that you are attempting with God through His Word and prayer to move further in your process of sanctification. It's not going to end until we die and we are with Jesus, but we can be more like Him. We can't, like Marcus always says, we can't be sinless, but we can sin less. Yeah, that's where we're at. So this morning, be encouraged. There is an end to this. There is an ultimate goal. The end is already written. We know that. It's just not going to be easy right now while we're all still alive, stuck in our sinful flesh. So I just I just want to say be encouraged. Look around at the people in this room. Talk to each other. Get to know each other if you need to. If you don't already is what I meant by that. Everybody needs to. But uh, let's just pray as we end this morning.